Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity in Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online at creativityinplay.com and follow us on Facebook as well. Our guest today on Creativity in Play is Rachel Terrio, CEO and head chef of Family Dinner, where she cooks for families and offers one-on-one assistance to the kitchen challenged. Her mission with Family Dinner is to bring families back together, sharing their meals and their lives around the dinner table. Rachel, Rachel Terrio, welcome to Creativity in Play. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you. So, how did you get into what you're doing these days? I know you your path was not a straight one. <laughs> yes, it was not. Um, it was similar to the last week's talk show. It was a crooked trail, I would say. Um, I started... Uh, cooking when I was a kid with my mom and my grandmother, just working in the kitchen, pulling out recipes, pulling out old family recipes, and cooking together was a big part of my childhood. Uh, Cooked with my mom, had dinner every night with the family, and that was a big part of my childhood and my memories of growing up and having that connection with my family. So when I went to college, I studied biochemistry and planned to do cancer research and find the cure for cancer and do great things and got into the day-to-day of it and realized that that wasn't exactly what I could enjoy and be fulfilled in doing every single day. So started just cooking for friends and family again in my apartment, on my tiny budget, in my tiny kitchen with two pots, and um, really just got back into learning how to cook and not just necessarily making biscuits and gravy all the time. And uh, so over the course of the last several years with doing different things and finally getting uh, laid off and having a bit of time where I just had some time to think about what I wanted with my life and what I wanted to give back to the world. This was really the thing that it came down to. I, I always was cooking for friends and cooking for family and having everybody over and doing it on a very limited budget. And what I realized was I can do this and teach other people how to do it and encourage people to just share their lives together because there are so many ways for us to go out and spend money and eat out and do things that avoid the core of kind of that family value where you're just sitting around the dinner table sharing your life, whether it was good times at school or tough times at the office, you know, however your family looks it is important to get all of those people who are the most important people in your life, your support group, your network, together to just share what's going on with your life. And with the economic times that we're in right now, I feel like having people over to your house makes it even that much more warm and personable than sitting at a restaurant spending two or $300 on dinner. So that's where I came around to the idea of family dinner, was let's get our family together, if that's your brother and sister and neighbor and best friend and their dog, and you guys all sit around in the backyard and have, you know, grilled food and a couple cold beers in the summer, or if it's sharing a pot of stew in the wintertime, just getting all the favorite people in your life together to share a meal and share your lives. Well, Rachel, what is... uh what does your kitchen look like? You mentioned your two pots. So what do they look like and what's your kitchen look like? Tell us about it. I know you have Luckily, a blog and you write about yeah. your different recipes that you have every day and or your weekly menu or whatever. So tell us about your yeah. kitchen and your pots. 
Well, my kitchen and my pots have definitely evolved over the last few years since my first studio apartment out of college. Um, when I first moved here, I had one uh, pampered chef's little two-quart pot and uh, a, like an eight-inch skillet, nonstick skillet that my mom gave me and said, here you go, <laughs> good luck. And I drove across the country with my little pot and my little skillet. And one of the first purchases that I made after getting uh, a full-time job was Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And sure enough, I started making little sauces in my little two-quart pot and trying to braise chicken in my nonstick, very flimsy little skillet. And, um, you know, some of those recipes turned out well, and some of them were marginal disasters, but I learned a lot from those different things, and I learned that with two pots, you really can create a wide variety of really good food, even if it's not beef bourguignon and uh, and things like that. But now I have my favorite pot is uh, probably my Emile Henri red seven-quart Dutch oven, and I've made everything from curry to gumbo to um, like roasted chickens with potatoes and carrots and things like that in that giant pot. And that's that's my go-to. It's definitely my favorite because it's so versatile and I can do so many different things with it. But my kitchen now is much, much bigger than it used to be. <laughs> well, I just I just read a, about another chef who hates to have an organized kitchen. She oh, really? She, she likes to have things out so she can use them. That's the purpose of a kitchen, she says. Is so that mm-hmm. so she has things here, there, and everywhere. She says that makes her feel a lot more better than having everything hung up in you know exact position. How about you? How how is your kitchen? I um I'm the opposite. I have a I definitely have a pot drawer and a pan drawer and a tool drawer. I I lucked out in the place that I am now where I have a ton of storage space in my kitchen. So I actually don't have anything hanging up on pegboards on the wall like I have in the past. Um, Everything has its own little nook and cranny. So I have a drawer with all of my tools, everything from the whisks to the garlic presses to the um, bench scraper and the marble rolling pen for making candy and pastry and things like that. And I have... um, one section that's designated with round bowls and one section with flat baking items. It's very, very, very organized. Um, But I find it makes it helpful because my kitchen isn't enormous. It is roomy and I have enough time, enough space to move around in it. But it's good for me because I know exactly where I need to go. And in the meantime, all of those things aren't in the way. I'm very averse to clutter in my kitchen. So I really like to know where I am and what I'm doing right now and have all of my ingredients and the necessary things for that dish or that uh, party or whatever right out in front of me and have everything else just put away in lots of clean, clear space. Um, I feel like that helps me be more creative because it's like a blank canvas. Um, but I could definitely see where, where this other chef would be coming from where you can see all the different possibilities with everything in front of you. I just work better with that blank canvas of one cutting board, one knife, and one pot. Let's go. Let's figure out what we can do with this. Thank you. You've mentioned uh, some food uh, from, I, I believe, your at least childhood. You've mentioned gumbo and biscuits and gravy, and I, I read oh, that yeah. you were born in Louisiana. Yep. Did, did you spend a good deal of your childhood in Louisiana? I spent a 
good portion of it. My dad was a minister, so we moved around quite a bit. Um, but I lived always in the south, Louisiana, North Carolina, Texas. Um, I finished high school in Missouri. And for me, that southern cooking is really the heart and soul of what I think of like real American food. Um, a lot of just family boil. You have a lot of people around sitting around a pot or doing a um, like a potluck where everybody comes together and brings one thing or another, their favorite dish, their family recipe. Um, and so that southern style of cooking where everyone contributes and um, everyone uses a lot of butter, that's very near and dear to my heart. I don't cook that way all the time anymore for sure. Um, I like to use now that I'm in Seattle and have learned what vegetables are, I like to use more vegetables and, and olive oil and a lot of the like, fruits and uh, fish and things from this area, but a good bowl of biscuits and gravy sometimes is just exactly what you need. So that's still still some of my favorites from the South. But yeah, Louisiana styles of cooking definitely influenced a lot of my my earlier recipes, and still today is what I consider my comfort food. I was going to ask you too if if the Louisiana influence in general just from the the great creativity that's in Louisiana, New Orleans, and, and other communities in Louisiana, if that has influenced the way you, you look at your cooking in general and, and the business that you've created out of that um, activity as well. Yeah, I think it definitely has. Um, there is a very creative, very entrepreneurial spirit in, in Louisiana that um, you know, a lot of those people came from nothing and have made themselves or made whatever their corporation or their business is. And, and people attribute their success in most times to their communities and their family and the support that they have. And the community structure and family structure of that area has had a big impact on both the way that I was raised and also the way that I'm growing my business because part of what I want to do is just bringing, the, bringing families, bringing community, bringing the people in your life together. And I find that I am the most creative and get, get like most, my biggest amounts of inspiration from the people in my life who are the closest to me. Um, and I think that that spirit is a Louisiana tradition, um, just of the people in the communities working together, whether it's rebuilding after a hurricane or, you know, mar- uh, surrounding their local team with spirit and enthusiasm. Um, the people in Louisiana definitely know what it means to be part of a family in the community, and that is a that is a spirit that I try and instill every day. Well, now, Rachel, what, what are some, um, oh, what do I want to say? What are some unusual ways that you found to create with food and... Um, and how has that made a more deep, loving connections in those families, typical or atypical that you're talking, that you're working with, that, and that you've been talking about? Um, well, one way that I really like to be creative in the kitchen is to pick an ingredient of the month. Um, I started doing this last year when I was starting my business and in trying to just research new recipes and also ingredients that I wasn't normally familiar with or didn't typically use in my kitchen, alternative flours such as rice flour, gluten-free options, um, alternative fats. 
um, in cooking that stay away from like butter or saturated fats, but use more olive oils and lighter oils, grapeseed oil, things like that. Um, so one thing that I've used to be creative, one tactic that I've used is to pick an ingredient of the month. Um, one month last year, it was rutabaga, and the rutabaga turned into a really neat experiment because I had never used a rutabaga before. I couldn't even sell rutabaga, I don't think, before last February. But it's a very winter vegetable. You know, it's a root. It's very plentiful at the farmer's markets around here in the wintertime. And, uh, boy, we picked up, up a couple of pounds at the farmer's market, came home, we boiled some, we blanched some, I steamed some, we pureed them. Um, and now rutabaga is kind of a thing that I like to just throw in to any pot of stew or soup, especially in the wintertime because it's so hearty and it's, it doesn't have very much of a different flavor from potato, but you can do a lot of the sim- a lot of similar things with it and it's readily available at farmer's markets in the wintertime. So that was one way that I found it was really fun to uh, be a little bit creative in the kitchen and stretch outside of my comfort zone. Instead of using a potato, let's just grab something new from the root vegetable family. Um, and the way that I think interacting with other families and with other styles of, of cooking and, you know, my kind of throwback style is home southern comfort food, just food that your mom would make. But there are some families that really want or have very specific dietary needs. And for those families that are maybe vegetarian, you know, a pot of chicken and sausage gumbo is not going to work for them. So I've been able to be really creative around um, alternate proteins and especially uh, alternate flour sources for some of my friends who are gluten-free. And... um, and that's been a really neat learning experience because you have to be a little bit creative. You have to be a little bit scientific as well with especially baking with alternate flours because different flours have different protein levels and you're looking at the interaction of that protein with fats that you use and liquids that you use. And so there's a little bit of science, there's a little bit of creativity and a whole lot of just experimentation in the kitchen. And that those are some of my more fun days when I'm just taking a recipe and doing it five different ways in, this, in a single day and trying to see what the results look like. And um, it, it does bring back a little bit of that old science experimentation uh, lab, lab structure that I was classically trained in, but then also um, combining it with a love of just eating good food all day. <laughs> so um, there are a lot of really neat ways that I've learned how to be creative and and learn and use different ingredients in the kitchen. It's been a good learning experience for sure. You just mentioned the uh, role of science in in that example you were talking about and and shared at the beginning that you started out studying biochemistry and wondering what role science plays today in the work that you're doing, uh, how how that comes into the the cooking experience. it plays a little bit, like I said, in the um, kind of more in the food science interactions. So um, I've, I've definitely had to do a lot of research on leavening ingredients like yeast, baking soda, and um, uh, baking powder. How those things interact in recipes to create rise in a cake or a bread, or um, you know any sort of like cinnamon roll or waffles or any any sort of pastry that way. I've also um, 
just found it really interesting to look at the science of proteins and how they cook. So, you know, when you get a really good sear on a steak, whether it's on the grill or in a cast iron skillet and then throw it in the oven, how you cook a, a piece of meat has a little bit of science to do with it as well, whether it's low, slow cooking and you're breaking down, um, like in the case of a stew, breaking down collagens and um, and different particles in the meat that contribute to it being really, really tender and juicy, or if you're taking a piece of meat and cooking it like a steak uh, where you want the outside to have that nice, crisp sear and the inside to be really moist and buttery and flavorful in that way. Um, you know, looking at the different ways that heat and uh, pressure affect food are really, you know, you can really nerd out on uh, food science. In fact, I just read a couple of weeks ago about a, a gentleman in Seattle who um, used to work at Microsoft, has a physics and I believe math background, and created a, I think it's a 2,500 page cookbook. It's not really a cookbook, but it's more a study of how food cooks. And uh, he really took that scientific approach to the next level. And I can't wait to get my hands on that book and, and check it out because the food science definitely keeps me interested uh, above and beyond just the, the creativity of creating a new recipe or um, interacting with a new ingredient. There's a lot to learn about how food works. Um, just as a scientific process. So that definitely keeps me interested. And um, and I don't know if it necessarily always uh, affects the things that I choose to cook, but it definitely helps me figure out the ways to cook uh, different things in different ways to keep food really interesting and exciting for the people who are eating it. I know that you've experimented in, uh, with different things like candies and helping um, families with long-standing recipes. And I also know you've been doing some apprenticeships. Um, and forgive me if that's not the right word, but I know in part of this um, or relearning or new learning you've been doing, you've been pulling apart things of different um, animals like lobsters and yeah. <laughs> with abandon. And so tell us about some of those kind of fun things, those um, creating different, creating candy, learning how to do that. And Because uh, I know in our family we have, my mom always made potato fudge. And it's a French-Canadian recipe, and I uh, have been playing with, creating the perfect, or what I think is my mom's perfect potato fudge. So tell us about how you go about creating some of those fun things or learning through new experiences. Yeah, potato fudge, that sounds really interesting. You have to send me that recipe because I want to play with it too. Um, the The thing that you mentioned about the candy, I did, I helped a client around the holidays who had a very old family recipe that was from her grandmother. And this woman is about my mother's age. She's in her mid to late 50s and has always had this recipe. And from the time of her childhood, remembers her grandmother making these peppermint candies around the holiday time. And her grandmother lived on the bottom floor of their home and couldn't make it upstairs to the kids' area, their playroom or wherever they were. So at the bottom of the stairs she had a little bell that she would ring whenever the candy was done, and the kids knew that 
when their grandmother rang the bell, they should run downstairs and get the candy while it was still warm. She had very fond and very distinct memories of this recipe um, and of the outcome of this recipe. Had the recipe on a piece of paper in her grandmother's old script that looked exactly like my grandmother's. And um, I just thought, you know, I really want to help you with this. So we worked together. I took the recipe, and it had little anecdotes like butter the size of a walnut and about this much sugar and about this temperature. And uh, it turned out that all of these things had very precise measurements associated with them, but a grandmother doesn't need to measure how much sugar or butter she puts in her recipe. She's been doing it for 50 years, so she didn't need to. Um, and when she wrote it down, she had no idea what the equivalent was. And my poor friend um, just really wanted to be able to recreate this for her family. So I took the recipe and I played around with, well, what what kind of walnut? Walnut in a shell? Walnut out of a shell? Um, how is it, How many cups of sugar and how hot? did a lot of research on just basic candy making, how different types of candies are made, um, pulled candies versus chewy candy like a caramel or something like that, and looked at general temperature ranges and general ratios of ingredients and really worked through it and met up with the client. And, uh, boy, we had a heck of a time making, uh, I don't know, maybe four pounds of her grandmother's candy, and she was so excited to have this just in time for the holidays. So we worked it out, got the recipe all put together, and um, just had a blast in her kitchen one afternoon making candy. Uh, and that sort of thing is definitely, going back to what you were asking about, Steve, the science of food and how that that really comes into play but also makes it really fun and really interesting is that a little bit too much butter makes your candy um, – not really come together, and a little bit too much sugar can make it crystallized on an instant. So I had a really interesting time making very crystallized sugars, <laughs> and uh, at one point I ended up with about a pound and a half of crystallized caramelized sugar on my countertop because one thing had gone wrong while we were cooling it, and uh, it just crystallized in an instant. It was amazing to watch it happen, and I was like, whoa, how did this How did this occur? And that brought up a lot of that just scientific evaluation of what happened, how can I repeat this, how can I do it differently? And, um, yeah, I ended up having to throw away a pound and a half of mapley tasting caramelized sugar because I didn't think that I could pawn it off to that many of my friends, but it tasted really good. It just, boy, it just wasn't candy at all. Um, but we ended up working that out. That was a lot of fun. Uh, figuring out that recipe and helping her. I am, uh, like you had uh, talked about, Mary Alice, I'm apprenticing or staging at a, re a restaurant in town right now that's a seafood restaurant. So um, a lot of the things that I've learned in the last few months have been around fish, shellfish, uh, lobsters, gooey duck, all these different kinds of clams and shellfish that uh, come from the Seattle area. And um, one day we got in lobster. It's starting to be lobster season somewhere, and we got a bunch of lobsters and a great deal. And um, these squirming, kicking lobster were just writhing about in a giant pan in the back room. And they said, okay, well, we have to cook these lobster for tomorrow. And I always just assumed that you'd 
just dump them in a pot like you would fresh crabs. We used to have these big crab boils in the south, and you would just take squirming, writhing crabs and dump them in a pot of hot water, and eight minutes later, they were done. And it turns out that the different parts of a lobster cook in, at different rates. So we wanted to cook the heads, save the heads separately so that we could make stock and cook the tails at one rate and cook the claws at another rate so that all of the meat came out at the right texture. And um, so I looked at the chef and he said, well, you just pull them apart. And I said, like a crawfish? And he said, yes, only bigger. And I've been pulling apart crawfish my whole life. Usually they had already been boiled. Um, but, boy, this time we just took one hand on the head and one hand on this clamping open and shut tail. Luckily the pinchers were rubber banded, but um, we just pulled them apart. And we had a little bit of lobster brain and a little bit of lobster meat and a little bit of lobster shell kind of everywhere. Uh, and then three pans, one with claws, one with tails, and one with heads. And um, that was a really crazy experience. You just pull and twist, and this whole live, living lobster comes apart and still keeps moving all the while because um, that's how nerve endings work. And so it was just a really, really crazy, kind of cool experience. Um, I definitely got home that night and was like, I need a pretty good shower before going to bed because I'm covered in <laughs> some bits of lobster goo. Um, but, yeah, that's been a really cool learning experience as well. And I, I took on that apprenticeship because I hadn't gone to culinary school and wanted to determine if I needed to. And I've definitely learned a lot there and um, have almost entirely decided that culinary school for this type of business that I'm doing uh, will not be necessary um, because I do know how to cook. I can cook. I'm now cooking in a restaurant. And um, and I'm learning a lot there. And I think that this apprenticeship has been a huge part of my learning experience as a budding chef and entrepreneur, not only to learn about how to think about costs in terms of a dish, um, cost per person, cost per serving, things like that, but also how do you keep a kitchen very, very organized and be really efficient with your time in terms of making a lot of things ahead of time so that you can use them throughout the week. Um, so it's been a really, really cool experience. And lobsters were, I would say, the most, uh, the one of the brighter highlights of that entire experience, for sure. The lobster experience sounds like something that would highly engage kids in an interest in food and science and cooking. And oh, absolutely. I some of the work that you do does overlap with kids uh, in families and engaging them in food and ingredients and stuff. And what what are they taking away from the, the experiences they have with you, um, even if it doesn't involve the lobster <laughs> in the remaining minute um, or so that we have here together? Yeah. Um, I think that some of the children that I have interacted with as I'm cooking and things, kids are just naturally so inquisitive about being in the kitchen. Um, they're inquisitive about everything. But it seems like when food comes out, they're that much more intrigued by, oh, it's not just a hot dog coming out of the microwave. This is somebody cutting something, and then they cut something else, and then they put that in a pot, and it made all this smoke and steam, and things happened, and then I had this delicious food, and how did that happen? 
um, kids find everything so fascinating, which is truly inspiring some days when I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I need to make another pot of spaghetti. Um, kids just find making a pot of spaghetti magical because there are so many little parts and pieces that are going on and happening. And I love, um, I just love that ability to interact with kids in a really meaningful way that hopefully will form some very, uh, very strong memories for them and encourage them later on in life to not just go out to eat at a restaurant, but then go home and say, like, you know what, there was lobster in my dish tonight. Let's pick up a lobster next time we're at the store instead of a piece of flounder or salmon and um, and tear it apart and make something new with it. Uh, so I, I do enjoy working with kids, and I think that, um, that getting kids into the kitchen, whether it's helping them uh, separate parsley from the skin so that you can chop it up because you really don't want kids working with with very, very sharp knives. But as children get older, they can start chopping little things or helping you pull apart a chicken or clean a carrot with a carrot peeler. There are a lot of ways that you can include kids in uh, in your cooking that are safe and easy. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. It was my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Rachel. Rachel Terrio is CEO and head chef of Family Dinner. You can listen to this show and previous shows again and find more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com and follow us on Facebook. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Ellis Long. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us. Thank you so much.